welcome to Stockholm. It's great to be here, really. Thanks for the invitation, Chris. Um, you just published um, your new book in Swedish about the Higgs particle. Let us start there. What is the Higgs particle? <laughs> well, uh, where to begin? Um, uh, maybe um, one way of just trying to explain this, of course, I, I, I take an entire book to make the point, but if I can kind of reduce it to a couple of simple sentences. Um, the interest, funnily enough, is not so much in the Higgs particle as what the Higgs particle represents. The Higgs particle is the fundamental particle of something called the Higgs field. And the Higgs field has a very, very important role to play in something called the standard model of particle physics, which is the mathematical uh, structure that physicists use to understand um, subatomic particles and the forces that act between them. Without the Higgs field, um, in effect, the universe as we know it would simply fall apart. I mean, there would be no material substance. Uh, the Higgs field is responsible for elementary particles like quarks and electrons um, having mass in the first place, or what we come to interpret as mass. So um, the Higgs boson betrays the existence of the Higgs field. The Higgs field is responsible for all elementary particles having mass. So it's a pretty important uh, thing to have found. Would you say that the Higgs field is like it's like like moving through water or something, something that makes it slower? There are a couple of analogies uh, that that uh, some um, physicists uh, actually use to try to explain what's happening. Um, these analogies are often inadequate, I should say, but I think they do help us to visualize a little bit uh, what might be going on. So imagine the Higgs field as like some kind of ethereal network of, um, of, of, of energy, a very, very tenuous um, energy field, um, which acts on elementary particles that would otherwise be massless, have no mass, as photons, uh, the particles of light, have no mass. But it acts on some of these particles and it resists their, their motion. It resists, in fact, uh, their acceleration. And what is resistance to acceleration? It's what we call inertia. And we associate uh, the physical property of inertia with things that have mass. Mm. So it's really rather interesting. And I'm fascinated by the way that our understanding has now completely reversed. If you'd asked the ancient Greeks, the atomists, the early atomists like Democritus, what the world is made of, and they would have said it's made of atoms. And atoms fundamentally have have mass. They are little bits of material substance that can't be broken down, break, broken down any further. And consequently, mass is something like a primary quality. It's something that's intrinsic. What we're learning in the standard model of particle physics is that's not how the universe works at all. Uh, it seems that particles that would really otherwise be massless um, gain mass as a result of being resisted by the Higgs field. And the analogy is that as these particles move through the Higgs field, they're resisted. It's a bit like swimming in molasses. Um, it, it slows things down. And as a consequence of slowing things down, we interpret that in our perception as uh, having mass. Yeah. But uh, the Higgs particle itself, does it have mass itself? Y yes, yes, it does. Um, well, who gives it the mass? Okay, well, that's, a, that's a, a really good question. And I think um, uh, the, the point is, and that there's, there's um, again, um, various and sometimes often confusing and contradictory ways of thinking about this. Um, so the standard model of particle physics 
effectively um, works on the basis of uh, interpreting every elementary particle that features in that theory um, in terms of a quantum field. So there is an electron field, there is a quark field, uh, there are fields for the, all of these different particles. There's a photon field, it's called the electromagnetic field actually. And, and all of these quantum fields have characteristic particles associated with them, and the Higgs boson is the characteristic particle of the Higgs field. In a sense, um, it, it, it acts by... Imagine, in fact, um, the, the field itself kind of clustering or clumping together to form something of a knot. It's an inadequate analogy to, to, to give, but that kind of characteristic disturbance, again, um, is... Uh, leads to a, a, a manifestation uh, that we then uh, you know, record as a particle. So in uh, kind of high-energy particle collisions that are observed at CERN, uh, we see things that we interpret as um, a fleeting existence for something that we would call a Higgs boson. But, but these things, is it a field, is it a particle, these concepts are interchangeable in the standard model of particle physics. Okay, so what you're saying is that the Higgs field and the Higgs particle is actually the same thing. Uh, it's it's these are different ways of thinking about the same thing mm -hmm. um so uh, like an electron um belongs to an electron field in in the standard model so the higgs boson belongs to the higgs field and uh, these concepts can be used to a certain extent interchangeably and, and physicists use these concepts interchangeably when seeking to describe the way that uh, the fields behave they will use the field type model when trying to think about how particles are colliding and interacting they'll use a, a particle model mm. um, one way of, of thinking about um, the way that elementary particles gain mass through their interaction is actually by saying these elementary particles are actually absorbing Higgs bosons as they interact with the field. I find that it's a little bit difficult because the Higgs boson has a fairly significant mass. It's 125 or 126 giga electron volts. And yet an electron, for example, is, has a mass of only 0.51 million or mega electron volts. So to have an electron absorbing a Higgs boson doesn't seem to me to compute. So I prefer not to think about it in those uh, ways. But they're perfectly legitimate ways of trying to understand what's going on. Whatever works for you, I guess, is the bottom line. I see. Um, this particle has also been called the God particle. Yes. What does it have to do with God? It has nothing whatsoever to do with God. The person <laughs> to blame for that um, is an American uh, high-energy particle physicist called Leon Lederman. Uh, Lederman wrote a book in 1993 which was titled The God Particle. And, uh, in fact, if you read um, the, the preface to that book, um, you'll, you'll, you'll come across his explanation. He called it The God Particle... Uh, because his publisher wouldn't let him call it the goddamn particle. Um, and he wanted to call it the goddamn particle because it was actually costing an awful lot to find. And yet um, it had a significance to particle physics and our ability to understand the nature of, of matter uh, that it was, was clearly something that, that kind of had to be found. We had to prove it was there or we had to prove the Higgs field was there. So it was in a sense of frustration. He wanted to call it the goddamn particle, but... In the end, he settled for the God particle. Now, of course, um, you know... As it, a publisher, this, I can say it's more selling to call it, it the God exactly. particle. Exactly. So, uh, you know, uh, the publishers and, uh, and journalists 
uh, pick up on this. And, and before you know uh, where you are, it's become a nickname that is very, very firmly stuck. Of course, I've used it myself in the title of my own book. So to a certain extent, it's, it's, it's one of those things you, you just have to accept. And it's an instantly recognizable nickname. Mm. Uh, we should talk about the actual experiment soon, but first, uh, let's stay with um, with the physics. Um, uh, some people say that this is the sort of the the, the last uh, piece to fulfill the standard model. Yeah, that's correct. Um, in effect, we're we're um, in um, a bit of a bind now uh, in uh, that part of um, fundamental physics in the sense that um, there is no um, observation or experimental result that cannot be explained by an existing theory, a theory that has existed really since uh, the early 1970s. Um, So this was the last ingredient, the last component. We kind of knew it had to be there, but that's not the same. And you know, scientific rigor demands that you show that it's there, you prove that it's there. If indeed this is the Higgs boson, which is required by the standard model, and not a Higgs boson, of which there are other theories that maybe even predict multiple uh, different types of, of Higgs particle. So um, yes, it's, it's the last ingredient. Um, uh, the big hope, I think, uh, was that the particle collider at CERN, the Large Hadron Collider, would would actually uncover some new um, unanticipated uh, particles, uh, that there would be some new physics that would be uncovered. Uh, The Higgs particle, finding the Higgs particle, is really kind of old physics in the sense it's proving kind of what we already knew or thought we knew. Uh, But yet there has been no sign as yet from CERN, from the Large Hadron Collider, of any new physics that will help take us beyond the standard model. Because the standard model itself is inherently problematic. There's lots of things that can't be right about it. Uh Let me ask, I know that you've thought a lot about the philosophy of physics. And if I ask you like this, what is the standard model? I mean, is it the truth about reality or is it just a semi-working way of thinking about reality? Um, well, it, like all science, I mean, irrespective of, of how scientists might sometimes choose to explain it themselves, um, science is always in transition. It's always a journey. Um, and there's an argument that says that as human beings, perhaps we are inherently incapable, of ultimately, of ever getting to the destination. We'll just keep progressing. We'll deepen our understanding. We'll will extend our knowledge into um, higher and higher energy domains, for example. Um, So I certainly think of the standard model as very much a work in progress. Um, The standard model is a collection of of theoretical structures based on quantum field theory. And and the simplistic way of thinking about this is is to say that they're really composed of three um, field theories. There's the theory of uh, quantum electrodynamics, which explains electromagnetism, so the force carried by photons that uh, um, allows uh, charged particles to interact. There's a theory of quantum chromodynamics at the opposite end of the scale, which is the force that holds quarks bound together tightly inside uh, particles called hadrons, of which the proton and the neutron are examples. So this is a force that binds these quarks quite tightly inside a proton, for example. And then there's a a, a further third force called quantum flavor dynamics, which is effectively a quantum field description of the weak nuclear force, 
which is responsible for some aspects of radioactive decay processes that have been observed since the time of Ernest Rutherford at the turn of the century. Um, beta radiation, for example, involves a neutron turning into a proton. And in actual fact, our understanding of that process now involves the, the turning of one type of quark into another. Um, so we've got theories that explain all of these different forces, uh, but the bottom line is that in order to make these theories work, we need about 20 parameters. Um, those parameters, which effectively, if you like, set up the structure of the theories and allow us to do calculations using them, these parameters can only be derived at the moment from experiment. There is no theoretical or ad hoc um, a way of getting hold of these parameters. We don't have a theory that explains why these forces have the strengths that they have, for example. Um, although we now explain the masses of elementary particles in terms of the way that these particles are interacting with the Higgs field, the truth is we don't know why uh, these particles interact in different ways with the Higgs field. So the masses aren't, aren't things that we can calculate using this theory. So um, there's quite a lot we still don't know. I mean, don't get me wrong, the standard model is an absolute triumph of the human intellect, but it, it, is, it is a way station. It is a, 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 you know, it's, a, it's pointing in a direction, but uh, it's certainly not the final answer. There's an argument that says the ultimate answer will come from the ultimate theory of everything. Um, the theory, for example, that brings gravity into the picture. It's a force that um, is not included in the standard model. Um, and, uh, and yet um, uh, bringing gravity into the picture is so fraught with, with, with problems and inconsistencies that it has defeated everyone who's, who's actually tried to put together um, a theory of everything so, so far. So you would say that gravity is uh, unexplained? I, 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 it's, it's, it's a... That's going, that's going too far. Gravity is explained by Einstein's general theory of relativity. Um, the problem with, with that is that the general theory of relativity is in fact a classical physical theory. Um, it says some very, very interesting things about what happens with space-time in the presence of, uh, of matter. Um, it applies on a very, very large scale. So it's great, for example, at calculating the orbits of planets around the sun. It's great for predicting what might happen to the universe as a whole, um, where the universe has come from in a, in a, in a big bang. Um, but um, gravity, because the force of gravity is so weak, has absolutely no influence at the subatomic level where quantum effects are um, very much part of the theoretical description. So one would say, well, what we need then is a quantum theory of gravity. And, and that theory still eludes us after many, many years of, of trying to, uh, to create one. Hmm. Um, let me ask you a little bit about the experiment in CERN. As I understand it, it's the world's most expensive experiment ever. Um, yes, that's probably true. Um, I, it depends on, on whether you think of, of projects like the International Space Station as being an experiment. I mean, of course, to a certain extent, there are things that the ISS um, uh, does um, that is more than about uh, performing scientific experiments. But certainly in terms of building a structure on Earth um, in order to, in effect, make um, an, an, a series of observations um, uh, that arise from smashing protons into one another, yes, it is, probably is the most expensive experiment on Earth. Um, 
it's um, what is it? It's a ring. It's it's it, well. In in fact, it, it's the latest in in what has been a succession of particle colliders. So this is a little bit different from an accelerator. A particle accelerator does what it says. It accelerates uh, charged particles either in a straight line or in a ring, uh, depending on the configuration. This is a particle collider. So in actual fact, there are there are two particle beams running in opposite directions around a 27-kilometer circumference circle, which dips in and out of France and, uh, and Switzerland because it crosses the border in a couple of places uh-huh. underground. And um, in effect, at, at certain points um, around this, this circle, um, these beams are, are, are maneuvered so that they are actually brought into head-on collision. Um, protons are accelerated around these rings um, up to speeds very, very close to that of light itself. Now, um, again, um, um, school physics will tell you that um, any particle which has a, an inherent mass or an inertia cannot be accelerated to light speed, and that's a fact. But with enough energy, uh, these particles can be moved to a speed which is very, very close to that of light. So imagine what happens. Two protons effectively collide in the region where these beams intersect. And, and literally, um, it's like winding the clock back to some of the earliest moments in the beginning of the universe. Probably about a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang, we're approaching energies that prevailed in the universe at that time. Out of the, the debris... Um, for a fleeting instant, um, there was an understanding that if it existed, um, Higgs bosons would form, and those Higgs bosons would very, very quickly decay, uh, but they would decay in a characteristic way. One pathway produces two very energetic photons, two, two quanta of light. Um, another decay pathway produces particles that are known as W particles. They themselves break down into electrons and muons and neutrinos, and then another pathway creates two Z particles, which again don't last very long. They break down and give a whole bunch of electrons and muons. So predicting that the Higgs boson would be formed and predicting how it would decay has enabled um, two uh, detector collaborations at the Large Hadron Collider to, to look for telltale signals that can be traced back to a Higgs boson. And that's effectively the way that the experiments have worked. It's taken them um, a couple of years, uh, but there was an announcement on the 4th of July in 2012, last year, uh, that uh, there was felt to be now sufficient evidence to say, yes, the, the, a particle very much like the Higgs boson had been found, uh, with more data that was uh, recovered during the course of last year up through to December 2012. Uh, there's now a lot more data that gives the physicists much more comfort uh, and they can now um, happily state that is definitely a Higgs boson that's been produced. Uh, what they can't yet be certain of is, 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 it, is it the standard model Higgs boson? That will probably take uh, quite a bit more effort. Um, as but you, they can do that with this collider. They, they, can, they can do that. Well, well, now they know they can make it. Um, they can find ways to study it in, in, in greater detail um, is probably one way of thinking about it. But um, what's happening at the moment, uh, again, you may be aware um, the Large Hadron Collider has, has been temporarily decommissioned. It's being stripped down. Um, um, a whole bunch of work is going to happen now for the next two years, um, effectively so that the collider can be brought back on stream at something close to its design energy, uh, which was, in fact, um, 14 trillion electron volts. 
Um, up till now, in order to find the Higgs, it's been operating at about half that energy, between 7 and 8 uh, trillion electron volts collision energy in order to, to give you know, the physicists the data that they've been looking for. So it's operated perfectly adequately. It's given the physicists what they need, but now they're upgrading it uh, to get closer to its design collision energy. And that, again, the higher energy means it will be easier. Uh, to to generate uh, more data on the Higgs boson. Um, uh, a few years ago, you could read in some papers that people were worried that it would create a black hole and things like that. What yeah. do you say about yeah. that? Um, I, this, this, to be honest with you, I didn't follow those stories uh, very, very closely. Uh, the headline was enough for me. Um, um, to understand... Okay, so so firstly, it's believed that in the earlier stages of the Big Bang... There, there would have been so-called primordial black holes. So these are not black holes of the type that maybe sit at the center of, of, a, of a galaxy, a spiral galaxy. Um, uh, these are or black holes that are formed as a result of a star collapsing at the end of its uh, uh, life. These are tiny, tiny black holes that are created as a result of quantum fluctuations at the very, very beginning of time. And it was believed because we're obviously at the Large Hadron Collider approaching energies that are getting us close to the energies that did prevail about a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang, there was a fear that um, one of the consequences would have been the creation of, of primordial black holes. I read a little bit of these articles, but I'm afraid wasn't persuaded myself that there was any real threat here. Um, yeah. So, um, and, and fantasies. I, I wouldn't say I, I, they were fantasies. I mean, what, what they do is that they depend on your willingness to accept certain theories that may not have a, a great deal of experimental foundation or, or foundation in empirical fact. Um, theories that are, are based largely on assumption. So you're assuming quite a lot. Um, and for us to get worried, I think what we had to do really was to have some evidence that this was definitely you know, going, going to happen. Uh, you might say that weren't the physicists therefore putting us in great jeopardy if we didn't know what was going to happen? How could we be confident that we would be safe? Uh, but again, I think based on experimental observations up until that point, uh, don't forget the Large Hadron Collider hasn't been the only collider operating at fairly high energies. Um, there's an institute in, in, uh, in America near Chicago called Fermilab who is operating a proton-antiproton collider up at around a trillion electron volts for already many years. So um, th there was maybe a hint, theoretically, that this could happen, but honestly not such a big hint that I started to get nervous. I see. Um, <clears throat> as I understand it, we have known for quite a few years that <clears throat> if we can build an accelerator like this, we will be able to detect if there are Higgs bosons or not. Yes. Uh, is there any next step in that sense? If we build it ten times as big, is there something we could detect? Well, well here now we, we, we do come, as I mentioned, to a, a kind of fundamental difficulty. Um, so, so what discovering the Higgs boson, it betrays the existence of the Higgs field, and that gives us confidence that the standard model is, is, is correct, or at least uh, correct insofar, as I said, uh, that um, you know, we, can, we can make it correct. Um, but it's got lots of, of, of problems. Um, and, and the next step, uh, so that the, the piece beyond that is is literally to wind think about it as winding the clock back even further maybe to a period um very 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 soon after the big bang when the electroweak force 
uh, was actually entangled or part of um, a grand unified force along with the strong force, the force that holds quarks together inside a proton or a neutron. Um, the problem that we've got is that the energy difference between where we are today, this is, the, this is the energy at which, if you like, the electromagnetic force melts together with the weak force, uh, to push to the energies that prevail at the time when the strong force also melts into this um, electroweak force um, is, is almost certainly too big a step. We, we, we can't build a collider big enough, uh, I think, uh, within, uh, within reason, unless something very, very off the wall is discovered in the next 10, 50 mm. years. So we are uh, arriving at something of an impasse, and I think the hope is that, well, well two hopes really. Um, the first is that the work at the Large Hadron Collider um, reveals some things that we maybe hadn't anticipated about the Higgs boson itself. Secondly, there is a lot of hope still pinned on theories that go beyond the standard model, theories such as supersymmetry, for example, and of course superstring theory, that predict a whole raft of new particles, uh, so-called supersymmetric partners. For every elementary particle in the standard model, in a supersymmetric theory, there is a supersymmetric partner. Mm-hmm. Um, Normally, these are uh, given uh, curious names, like the superpartner of an electron is called a selectron. Uh, a superpartner of a quark is called a squark. Mm-hmm. Um, and if these particles really do exist, uh, then uh, there's, there has been arguments uh, in the past that really we should be within range of them with the Large Hadron Collider, certainly at its uh, operating collision energy of 13 or 14 trillion electron volts. Um, the problem is that these particles have not put in an appearance so far. Um, and theorists are now beginning to backtrack. Uh, what we're seeing is that they're coming up with alternative variations on supersymmetry theories that make sure that these supersymmetric particles get pushed up to higher and higher energies, very, very usefully out of reach of the Large Hadron Collider, uh, which is the argument this is why they haven't been discovered yet. But it's going to be very interesting to watch. Who knows what will happen with a high energy from the Large Hadron Collider? All bets are off. Anything can happen. Myself, my own personal opinion is I don't think these supersymmetric particles will be found. Um, uh, the foundation for supersymmetric theories, for me, um, is is a perfectly valid and logical development uh, of the standard model. Uh, but I, I worry now um, that it's that it's 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 taken us in in the wrong direction, and we may need to rethink um, and have a, a a real good hard look at a blank sheet of paper and come up with a different approach. You think it's too speculative? Um, it's it it, it, it it is entirely speculative, uh, and one of the problems is that it creates more problems than it solves. Um, so, for example. We, we struggle a little bit with the fact that we have to have 20 parameters in the standard model uh, that we can't predict. We, can't have a, we, we don't have a theoretical basis for calculating what these parameters should be. We have to work out what they are from experiment. Um, supersymmetric theories extend the number of parameters to over 100. Uh, that just gives us way too much flexibility and freedom. We can come up with almost any, anything um, uh, in response to you know, what we see or what we don't see at the Large Hadron Collider. And as a consequence, I think um, it's very, very difficult. You'll never prove that supersymmetry doesn't work, 
because quite simply there'll be a workaround for every everything that you don't find um, uh, at the Large Hadron Collider as, as a result. And I honestly think we, we need physicists need to come up with some, some, some different ideas. But in the meantime, we have to have some faith, perhaps, that uh, there is still something we don't yet uh, know uh, that is lurking uh, in proton-proton collisions at the kind of energies that the Large Hadron Collider can produce. Mm. Let me ask you a political question. What do you say to people who say that Why do you put so much money in this experiment? Yeah. You could yeah. use it to, you know, erase starvation in the world. Yeah. Um, I, I the, these are obviously valid valid arguments. Um, I, I think uh, the, the point of of the matter is that we just have to accept, uh, to a certain extent, that there is a price to be paid for our intellectual curiosity um, to deny us. An ability to exercise that curiosity is to deny who we are and what we are as human beings, I think. Yes, of course, it's become inordinately expensive in some people's eyes. And, of course, there was the uh, big debate in America in the early 90s. Um, the Americans were intent on building an even bigger collider, something called a superconducting supercollider, and had already, in fact, broken ground and were drilling tunnels in Texas Uh, when uh, Congress took the decision to cancel the project, having spent already two billion dollars on it, wow. um, but uh, that that was that was that was real politics. That was um, a, a decision that was taken that basically said, "There's this is costing us too much. Um, we have we are curious, but we're not that curious." And money in in the end was spent on the International Space Station. I think that was twenty five billion dollars at the time in the early nineties, um, and and. Um, and against that background, it's very, very difficult to know what the right decision is. Um, I think at CERN we have a slightly different situation because we're splitting the cost of these things. No one nation is taking full responsibility. No one nation owns CERN, as it's as uh, as you uh, can imagine. Um, of course, it's a European collaboration, but of course, since the cancellation of the superconducting supercollider, we've had many, many American physicists have been participating in the activities of CERN. So it's it is very much a global project, and I think um, if if the entire humanity of Earth can't find it within themselves to fund uh, projects like this, then it, it, I don't know what that says about us as a species. Okay, good. One final question: uh, Do you think this discovery will win the Nobel Prize? Um, I think there's every reason to expect that it that it will. Um, the the big debate, I think, is precisely who uh, will receive the prize. Um, the the theoretical structure that um, that that set us out on the path uh, towards fixing this particular issue in the standard model, um, invoking the Higgs field, and, and therefore predicting the Higgs boson, um, in fact, um, was not only one man. Although the mechanism that's used has become associated with Peter Higgs, who was a, a, an English physicist who worked most of his um, uh, life at the University of Edinburgh, um, the, the mechanism has become associated with his name, but there, there were in fact at the time six uh, theorists who published near simultaneous papers outlining much the same uh, approach. They were Robert Brout and Francois Englert, Belgian physicists, Um, and um, Gerald Goralnik, Carl Hagen, and Tom Kibble. 
Guralnik and Hagen are American theorists, Tom Kibble is a British physicist, and all three at the time were working at Imperial College in London. So these guys published papers in 1964. Um, arguably, all six um, uh, were, you know, it was a near simultaneous discovery, um, and I don't think there's an argument one way or another. Put it this way, when a, a theory prize called the Sakurai Prize was awarded some years ago, all six physicists received this prize. But the Nobel Prize has to be three, right? Correct. Now, sadly, Robert Brout um, died of a long illness in 2011, and as you know, the Nobel Prize cannot be awarded posthumously. Mm. Um, Peter Higgs, I think, with the best will in the world, it's difficult to see uh, a a reason for excluding him. Um, I think he's, he's obviously going to get a share of the prize. There's a case that can be made for Francois Englert, uh, the, the problem will be Guralnik, Hagen, and Kibble. Um, so it's going to be very interesting to see what the Nobel Prize Committee decides. Only three, um, or maybe two, can receive the prize. Um, so therefore, given that there are five potential candidates, uh, some maybe harsh decisions will have to be made. Which year? I'm thinking, given that the evidence is now stacked very firmly in favour of a Higgs boson, I don't think it really matters that... Um, we can't as yet prove this is the Higgs boson required by the standard model. Um, I think it's enough um, that um, the theorists um, are recognized. Um, So my instinct is that I think there's a real good chance the Nobel Prize will be awarded this year. It couldn't be awarded last year, I think, because the evidence wasn't clear enough. Um, The announcement on the 4th of July last year uh, was for the discovery of a particle that was consistent with the Higgs boson, and that arguably is too weak. Now we're much stronger, the data is much firmer, and I think now there's every reason to suspect that there'll be a Nobel Prize for the Higgs mechanism this year. Okay, thank you for talking to us. Uh, You're very welcome, Krista. Thank you very much. 